from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we, made, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The word of the Lord. Continuing with our reading in Genesis, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall run contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Amen. As we stand, let's pray together. 
Almighty Father, uh, as we come now to your word, um, as we come to wrestle with this story that um, sometimes is enigmatic, sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, intriguing, it's disturbing, it has a tendency to unveil something very deep within us, and, and that can be scary, can be frightening. And yet in the middle of the story, you come and you search for your people who are in the midst of hiding. You search for your people when they're running from you. You come and you search for us like a shepherd seeks after a sheep that's gotten lost. And you come and you find us and you speak to us and your words frighten us sometimes. And yet at the end, they heal us. And so we ask you to do that now, that you will come after every one of us. Come and seek us and find us precisely in the places where we'd prefer to hide. Search, search those bits out so that we can be uncovered before you and covered by your grace more deeply and more profoundly than what we can imagine. And we ask this through the work of Christ our Lord. Amen. Have a seat. Um, we're continuing our series in the uh, uh, book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible. This is our second week uh, looking at this reading, and we're going to really deal with the second part of the first reading and the first bit of the second reading, and next week we'll uh, finish out this reading with the, with the last portion. It. Let me... Um, let me set this up with, with a, big, a, a bit of a crazy question. Here, here's the question. Uh, what hope is there for humanity in a troubled world like ours? Now, that's a big, you know, kind of crazy, audacious question. But um, don't you think it's pertinent? When I listen to the news, I increasingly get the sense that that is the uh, unarticulated question that is trying to be addressed by every news segment I listen to or watch or, or read. Um, so it, what, what do I mean? Well, I mean, we, you know, we live in a, a war-torn world, and almost every day, every day, I think, uh, the news feed comes up and there's something about a war somewhere terrible, a terrible war someplace. And it seems to me that the question, every time I click on those links and I read those uh, reports, the question is, uh, is there any hope for a war-torn world like ours? Uh, and then it's not just overseas. Um, there's uh, news items uh, here at home about, um, you know, uh, various conflicts happening here in our nation. And once again, it seems to me that when you read about any of the number of those questions, the question that is underneath it is, uh, is there any hope for a uh, deeply divided nation like ours? Um, and then once again, you hear uh, news reports about uh, people who are experiencing terrible distress in any number of different ways. And it seems to me that the question that is trying to be explored is the question, uh, is there any hope uh, for humanity in a world in which uh, people find themselves in just terrible, terrible distress? I think that's even true of like the human interest stories. You know, I mean, you, you hear the story about the dog that gets lost in Yosemite and six months later it sure shows up in Manhattan and it's like, how did that happen? And, 
And, but those show up in our feed to kind of give us a little bit of breathing space, trying to say maybe there is hope in the midst of a troubled world like ours. Now, why am I asking this question? Not because it's coming up on the news feed, but because it's a deep question in the book of Genesis. The, Je the book of Genesis is trying to ask, is there hope for the world in the midst of a broken world like our own? And, and Genesis comes with a remarkable and unexpected answer, I think. I, I, so if I were uh, trying to articulate hope in the midst of this world, I might um, imagine a couple different uh, answers. I might say something like this. I might say, yes, the world is broken and evil is real, but it's not as powerful as the good. So be optimistic, hang in there, and keep calm, carry on, and, and the good will win in the end. Uh, that makes sense to me. That's not Genesis's answer. Uh, I might say, yes, evil is real and the world is broken. And you know where it is? It's evil is in our opponents. It's in the other team. It's in the other group. It's in the other nation. It's in the other party. It's in the other, it's in our opponents. And therefore, if evil is going to win, you just got to fight. You got to fight. And if we fight enough, then, um, then, then we'll win. And, and that's where our hope will be found. But that's not Genesis's answer. Or I might imagine uh, saying something like this, yes, the world is troubled, and, and, but deep down, deep down, if you go down deep within myself, within yourself, if we are really authentic to the deepest parts of who we are, that's where you will find hope. That's where I will find hope. Now, all of those paths uh, have some kind of intuitive, compelling uh, aspect to them, but they're none of them Genesis's answer. Genesis begins with a devastating vision of sin. It begins a, actually with a beautiful account of creation, but the bit that we're looking at today gives us a devastating vision of sin. Genesis says sin, ever since Genesis chapter 3, is everywhere. It's in each one of us, and it alienates all of us. And one way you know that, Genesis, that we're hearing Genesis well is that it presses the question, is there any hope in a wrecked world like ours? Is there any hope for a troubled life like mine? And the wonderful unexpected answer from Genesis is, yes, there is hope. There's great hope for a world like ours and for a life like mine. But according to Genesis, you're going to find that hope in the most unlikely place. And what I want to show you is that in order to see the unlikely vision of hope that Genesis gives us, we've got to look at sin and evil right in the face. And what we need to discover is this. Sin alienates humanity. It alienates us from ourselves, it alienates us from one another, and it alienates us from our vocation and our purpose in this world. And it's when we take the alienation of sin very, very seriously, that there, in the midst of that, in that most unlikely place, is precisely where Genesis is going to show us the pathway to hope. So that's where we need to go. We're going to look at the alienation, and then we're going to go to hope. Come with me into the story. We're going to begin at verse uh, 7. It says this, Then the eyes of both 
Adam and Eve were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Now, here's my question. Why are they ashamed? Uh, and why, in particular, are they ashamed of their bodies? Now, keep in mind the context, and remember last week. Uh, last week, we looked at the first portion of the first reading, and what happens is the snake comes to Eve, and Adam's right next to her, and the snake, the kind of embodiment of evil, we find out later it's identified with the devil, the snake comes and lies about God, falsifies God. Uh, the snake comes and says, listen, Eve and Adam, God's not just and you shouldn't trust him. This was last week. In fact, the snake says in so many words, God actually is not your father, he's your tyrant. And the snake says, Eve, and eventually Adam, you need to renounce God, you need to declare your own independence, and you need to replace God and his authority with yourself and your own autonomy. We saw last week that they went for it, and we said that the root of sin is the falsification of God. But the trouble is, and what we're seeing this week, is that instead of gaining the freedom and the autonomy and the joy that they expected, instead they found themselves experiencing desperate alienation. So if the root of sin is a falsification of God, the fruit, the bitter fruit of sin, is the alienation of humanity. And the first alienation they taste is alienation from themselves, and more specifically, alienation from their own bodies. Now, why is that? Why are they ashamed of their bodies? Um, remember the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, uh, two chapters before this, God creates humanity beautifully, and it says that God created humanity in his own image. What does that mean? Many things, but part of it is this. It means that God designed humanity to enjoy a pristine intimacy with God. And then, based upon that pristine intimacy with God, we were supposed to uh, reflect God or represent God within the midst of this world. And according to Genesis chapter 1, go read it later, the human body is part of that plan. So God creates the male body. God creates the female body. And the idea is that we're supposed to receive the specifics of our body as gifts, uh, from, uh, gifts from the love of God, and then we are to offer our bodies back as gifts of love to God. Uh, God loves our bodies, we find out. God designed our bodies, and our bodies were made for God. That's Genesis chapter 1. Then in Genesis chapter 2, we've, we get introduced to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve are naked with each other and unashamed. What's that all about? Well, part of it is about uh, their uh, sexuality in the context of the first marriage, but it's also about intimacy, and in a very important way, it's about security. So Adam and Eve stand under God's love, and they're totally known, and totally safe, and totally secure, and therefore, their biology, their bodies, and their psychology are integrated together under the love of God, and they flourish with joy. 
And even as I say that, I know that, I mean, Emmanuel, that that's an experience that deep down all of us desire and in some ways seek all our lives, but, but we've never really finally experienced. Why? Because of sin. Not just the specific sins we have committed in our past, but the fact that ever since Genesis chapter 3, we live in a world where sin is all around us and touches every part of who we are. And sin loves to alienate humanity. And sin wants to alienate us from our own selves and from our own bodies. And what happens here in this reading is that Adam and Eve replace God uh, with themselves, but in the process, they lose themselves. Why do they lose themselves? They, they lose themselves because the self uh, was made for God. And without God, the self becomes desperately insecure. Look at verse 8. So the Lord comes to walk with them in the cool of the day, like a, like a father comes to play with his children after work. But Adam and Eve, they run and they hide. Why? What are they afraid of? Well, look at verse 8. They're afraid of the presence of the Lord. Something terribly, terribly tragic about that because they hide from the love that used to satisfy them. They hide from the source of their previous security. And the whole time, do you notice that Adam really can't stop thinking about himself? Uh, in verse 7, he sees his nakedness. And then with the fig leaves, he tries to cover his nakedness. And then he hears the Lord coming and he tries to hide from his nakedness. But there's a way in which Adam is constantly thinking about himself. And what's happened is he's made himself his own God. But he, what he's discovered is that the self, without, when it's not surrendered to the Lord, becomes a tyrant. And we all know that all tyrants are profoundly insecure. Do you feel that? Uh, the self has been a tyrant ever since Adam ate that fruit. And yet in some sense it seems louder and less restrained and more tyrannous in the, I don't know, the age of the selfie. Can you taste the bitter fruit of our alienation? But sin alienates us not only from ourselves, but from each other as well. Take a look at verse 12. Um, God asks Adam, what, what happened? And Adam says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I, and I ate. Now, do you notice how he gaslights God? <laughs> it's all a sin. Um, he says, God, you know, ugh, eye roll, glottal release, it's your fault because you, if you, if you were doing your job right, you would know that this is not the woman for me. And, but there's something else. Um, do you notice in the midst of all the blame shifting, uh, Adam exposes the root of human hatred. What do I mean? Remember again, the image of God. So Adam and Eve, they're made in the image of God, and that meant that they were meant to be a team together. Uh, God creates humanity in his own image, but he has to create the male and female. He creates Adam and he creates Eve. They've got to work as a team together. Uh, and they were meant to receive the love of God together, reflect the love of God together, and share the love of God together. 
But now sin rips that whole situation apart. Now Adam looks at his precious wife, the gift of God, his necessary ally, and what does he do? He hates her. Oh, he blames her. You say, Jim, don't use such a strong word, hate? No, this is the root of hate. And why does he hate her? Because he needs somebody to hate. Uh, Jonathan Sachs is a philosopher, was a philosopher and a, and a rabbi. He calls this pathological dualism. What, it works a little bit like this. I, I, I have to do something with the evil that's in me, and I've got to do something with the evil that I see in this world. And so what I do is I persuade myself that all of the evil that is threatening me is actually in the other person. It's about the other person, or it's about that other group, or it's about that other nation, or whatever it is. If I can locate the evil I want to resist in the other, then it frees me from the guilt and the shame that it plagues me, but it also gives me a way to fight, all the while feeling entirely justified. And you can see this, Emmanuel, you can see this play out in our, in everything from divorce to sibling rivalry, to racism, to political polarization, to war, to misogyny, and to a thousand other evils because sin alienates humanity. It alienates us from ourselves it alienates us from each other. And then thirdly, it alienates us from our vocation and our purpose. What do I mean? Well, again, think about the image of God. Uh, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates us in his own image, and that comes with a job, the, a vocation, a calling, and a purpose. Um, we're supposed to, on the one hand, uh, fill the world with humans, <laughs> be fruitful and multiply. And on the other hand, we're supposed to uh, subdue the world and have dominion, which doesn't mean dominate. It means reflect God's character in this world so that this world flourishes. We're supposed to have families, make babies, and we're supposed to uh, improve this world according to God's plan. But sin alienates us from that vocation. You can see it all through the reading. It breaks apart the family. And verse 16, God says to the woman, childbearing will be painful and family life will be conflicted. And verse 17, God says to the man, your work will turn into toil. Your vocation will feel futile, and work will be painful. And that's one of the reasons why all of us, we, we want to do something significant in the midst of this world, and yet many of us, at some point, the, it feels futile. Now, I don't know what you think about all this, but I wonder, can you identify the alienations that this describes? Sin alienates us from our vocation, our sense of purpose. It's why things feel futile. Uh, sin alienates us from each other. That's why hate is so endemic. Sin alienates us from our own selves, and that's why we can't escape a persistent shame. And I wonder which one bites in your life. And I ask that question because we'll never discover the hope that's right there for us in the midst of this reading until we're really, we're ready to, to feel something of the alienation of sin. Until we stop hiding. But there's one more alienation to deal with, and this is the toughest of them all, friends. Everybody breathe. Everybody. 
This is the alienation we really want to hide from. And it's this, sin alienates us from God. Or, more accurately, sin alienates God from us. What do I mean? In this reading, God is hostile to our sin. And God's hostile to those who do sin. And that means us, friends. And I know this is tr deeply troubling, but I, I just ask you to stay with me for just a second, okay? God's love and God's hostility to evil is, is not a contradiction in God. It, it seems like it. So I knew a boy once who experienced abuse as a small child. And one day he was speaking with his father about it. And he looked into his father's eyes and he saw anger. Not anger at the child. Not anger at the victim. But he saw within his father's eyes anger at the abuser and the abuse. And that boy knew in that moment that his father loved him. Because had his father been indifferent, an indifferent father is a loveless father. And I say that because I want you to know that love and justice are not contradictions in God. God's love and God's hostility against evil and our sin are not opposed to each other. God's hostility to evil is God's love deployed as justice as it slams up against the evil of this world that threatens us so desperately. God is a God, if God isn't hostile to evil, then it means that God is not committed to justice and that cannot be a God of love. But the God in Genesis that we meet is a God of love and he loves our bodies and he's hostile to a sin that separates us and alienates us from our own selves. God loves healthy communities that love each other and therefore he's hostile to sin that rips us apart and makes us hate. God loves this world and wants it to flourish, and he's hostile to sin that would make us not caretakers of this world, but a threat to this world. And this, again, it's where we want to hide. It's where we want to grab a fig leaf or run. But this is the crucial moment, Emmanuel, and I, and I, I pray you would, because here's... It's when we begin to feel the weight of sin that we're ready for the word of hope. This is the unexpected moment of hope. Can I show you what hope there is for humanity in a wrecked world like ours? Very strangely, you've got to look into the epicenter of God's hostility to find the hope we need. Look at verse 15. The Lord, in his hostility, is speaking to the snake. Now, the Lord holds Adam and Eve accountable for their sin, but he does something different with the snake. He curses the snake. The snake is the embodiment of evil, the devil. But in the middle of his curse, he makes a promise, and it's verse 15. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What? What's the promise? In God's hostility against evil, God promises here that evil's not going to win in the end. In God's hostility against evil, he promises that he's going to engage evil in mortal combat. 
God promises that he's going to put enmity or hostility between the snake and the woman and her descendants, which means he's going to step in and somehow break the unholy alliance between ourselves and the sin to which we cling so closely. It means that God's going to break that alliance between the snake and humanity. God's going to somehow change the human heart so that we no longer want to listen to the snake, but we want to defect back into the love and the kingdom of God. But how's that going to happen? Well, it takes the whole rest of the Bible to answer that question. But here's the short version. In every age, God has broken into human lives and changed the human heart and moved us to a place where instead of hiding and running and grasping to the self, but we want to surrender to God wholly and all that we are. And yet, as you read the story of the Bible, you see this happen. And yet, even when we're at our best, even the best of us can never quite overcome this lies of the snake. We can never quite overcome our own tendency to run back to the snake. We keep getting crushed by the snake. And so we need a better offspring. We need a better offspring who can crush the head of the serpent. And therefore, God, in his loyalty to his promise, he wrote himself into the human story. God himself becomes human so that he could become Eve's greater offspring. God himself becomes human. He's born of the greater Eve whom we call Mary in order that he might become the last Adam whom we call Jesus. And on the cross, as Jesus dies, all of God's hostility against evil and sin is reconciled with God's perfect love towards those who are sinners. And on the cross, Jesus experiences all the bitter fruit of our alienation. He was stripped naked. And he felt something of our alienation from our own selves. And he was hated and despised, and he drank deep the cup of the hatred that we show one another and that we have experienced. And there, as he hung upon the cross, everybody looked at him and said, there is a futile life, a futile life. He's such a failure. And he knows something of the futility that wrecks our lives and that haunts us. But there on the cross, he was crushing the head of the serpent. There on the cross, he experienced all the alienation that, we, that our sin deserves when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died with pierced hands and a bruised heel. And what of the snake's head? It was crushed. Didn't look like it. Took three days for the results to come in. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved that the snake's head was crushed and that God was faithful. And this, Emmanuel, is the happy word of hope. It means we don't have to stay trapped in our alienation. It means we can be set free from the snake and the self and our sin. So what hope is there for humanity in a wrecked world like ours? And what hope is there for a soul that's been wrecked by sin like mine? And it's this, Emmanuel, it's Jesus Christ and no one else. And all of us here are going to be tempted to look at the self as the locust of our hope. To look something in me 
There's got to be something in me that can give me hope, but don't do it. It doesn't work. And deep down, you know it's true. And all of us are going to be tempted at some point to shift the blame and gaslight God and put all the evil in somebody else. But don't do it. It doesn't work. And deep down, you know that's true. And we're all of us going to seek to find hope in our vocations or our careers and to prove our worth by the performance of our work, but don't do it. It's not going to work, and deep down you know that's true. All of that is hiding. All of that is those they're fig leaves. And all the while, God himself is seeking us. Where are you? Where are you? And all the while, God is coming after us, and he's saying, Behold, look at my son. Look at his pierced hands and his pierced feet. He crushed the serpent's head for you. He crushed the serpent's head at the cost of his eternal, of, of his life in this world. And now eternally he reigns and he reigns to set you free. And so won't you come and won't you surrender? Won't you lay it down? All of it, lay it down. All the alienation, lay it down. All the sin that has been perpetrated against you and all the sin that you have perpetrated for another and all the ways that we've hidden, oh, lay it all down. And there you will find yourselves embraced by pierced hands. And there you will find a self embraced in a security for which you were made and that you've always desired. And there you'll find a new capacity to love even your enemies. And there you'll find a purpose when all your futility is put at the cross and you can find yourself living for the kingdom of God. So come to Christ, won't you? And he is our hope. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.